Hello. Welcome Hello. back to Conversations with Stephen Kamgasa. Today's guest is Mr. Guy Den, the founder and former executive director of Public Concern at Work, a whistleblowing charity which now operates under a new name, Protect Advice. <clears throat> Mr. Den was educated at Westminster School from whence he went to Bristol University to read history and qualified for the Bar of England and Wales in 1982. Guy practiced common law in both London and Bristol, where he also ran two free legal advice sessions. In 1986, he was appointed the legal officer to the National Consumer Council and in 1988, ran its parliamentary work. Guy left the National Consumer Council to start a little project on whistleblowing in 1992, which subsequently became Public Concern at Work, PCAW. He remained at the whistleblowing charity until 2008. During his tenure as executive director, Guy was instrumental in bringing onto the statute book the Public Interest Disclosure Act, 1998. After leaving PCAW, Guy went on to set up a charity on witnesses in criminal justice system, Witness Confident, but was compelled to close it down after a decade of indifference and opposition from the police. Guy Den has co-edited, along with Richard Callard, a book, Whistleblowing Around the World, Law, Culture and Practice. In this episode, we answer the question, is a whistleblower an angel, a villain or a bloody fool? Welcome, Mr. Guy Den. Welcome to you, Stephen. Guy, as a Londoner born and bred, can you please tell us what it was like growing up in London and how did the experience shape the man you subsequently became? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. And it sort of, I think the important thing to uh recognize and certainly the question makes me recognize is you know when i was born in 1957 you know uh well it wasn't until i was 10 so about 1967 that abortion became legal homosexuality wasn't criminal um really in my youth a woman's place was at home uh jobs were for life once you got a job uh society tended to be very deferential um the western world was run by white men old white men but the sort of seeds of change had already been sown in the post-war world and i think probably the dominant new force that helped usher all of that in was music um which obviously was much more multicultural than a lot of uh western other Western cultural um, norms. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I would say music and probably the what's perceived, what's called now the sort of sexual revolution, the, the pill changed society a lot. I mean, I grew up in South London. Um, there were no cinemas. The nearest cinema was maybe five or six years ago. They'd all been uh, changed into sort of bingo halls um i said my memory of it is quite sort of monochrome if you think of it being sort of colorful now mm. um there you know i would play you know i went to school play with my friends play with my siblings um i started work at a very young age i mean for, when i was 12 i got my first job at uh, a local garage and 
um, they were all important uh, experiences for me. And I think they probably fed into, uh, yeah, they fed into the man I was, as as your question describes it, and impacted, uh, you know, on my approach to whistleblowing quite seriously. I mean, I can give you, you... Sorry. Carry on. I mean, I can give you... I mean, my first whistleblowing experience was when I was 16. And um, I was working as a bellboy. So that's someone who works sort of in in the lift at Mm. the Savoy Hotel. Mm -hmm. And I've forgotten, you know, this is probably about 1970. 475 and you know we weren't paid very much money i've forgotten it may have been 20 25 pounds a week and the chambermaids were filipino were were, were people from the philippines women from the philippines and obviously i got talking to them because you know sometimes i had to go and help sort out a room or whatever this is a time when the room if my memory is right the rooms cost about 64 pound a night we were being paid Mm -hmm. i was being paid as i say i think something like 24 pound a week Mm -hmm. and um the was talking to some of the uh, chambermaids and they were paid 10 pounds a week and the deal was they're 10 pound a week i was a 40 hour week they were essentially a 60 or 80 hour week because they Mm -hmm. lived in the hotel in a tiny little room in sort of triple bunk beds and you know i said well what it was crazy they get better jobs outside why didn't they leave and they said that if they said they would leave the hotel would report them to the home office as Mm -hmm. being illegal immigrants and I just thought it was completely out of order. So I went and saw the managing director who was in the hotel, the director, and mm-hmm. um, told him what I thought and and left. Now, it was per- perfectly possible for me to leave. I didn't have a family support. As I say, I was sort of about 17. Um, you know, that was something, it, it seemed important to make a stand on that and then there was another issue maybe a year or two later when i was at a hospital in working as a porter a theater attendant at dulwich hospital um it wasn't it wasn't that big a whistleblowing thing there was a very small team of us in in the theater there were uh in the uh attendance of the theater there were five of us um again i was a student so my job wasn't really that important to me. I was just earning money to go traveling to India. But there was an issue blew up really with the guy who was our union rep who was wanted us to go on strike over Christmas over a minor issue. And anyway, I made it plain I didn't want to go on strike. We didn't go on strike. But shortly after I left, went on another, um, he was able, he parked a bicycle in the operating theatre and had a big dispute with the hospital about it. It started a strike and it became a strike across, not just in the hospital, in South London, London, and then the, um, not the whole of England, but a lot of England. And and it was one of the strikes that led to what's called the winter of discontent Mm -hmm. and uh, brought on the conservative government of Mrs. Thatcher. So there was, again, there was a thing there where whether people have a confidence to, if they think something is wrong, to express their view. I suppose one of the issues is in our society, we aren't taught to say no. Mm. You can say no in a constructive way. And I think then probably as far as, as the my real work on whistleblowing, probably the most influential thing was when I was a bar student and there mm-hmm. was a case of a very senior successful barrister who um, put a, a, a woman pupil I knew in a very compromising position mm-hmm. and uh, she didn't know what to do. Um, it's not 
really conceivable. There was a misunderstanding. Um, I raised it. I got uh, um, uh, you know I, I got in a lot of trouble for raising it. Uh, it was made very plain. It was completely out of order for me to say something. And if a man and a woman wanted to sleep together, that was their lookout. The fact mm. that it was in a sort of a head of chambers in a pupil barrister trying to mm. become a tenant mm. seemed irrelevant. Um, and so there were those experiences, which, you know, so I always felt there was a dilemma people had in workplaces that if you were in a workplace and something was going wrong, it was the best, you know, what were the options people had to raise it? How could they raise it? And part of the problem was there was a sort of cultural norm then that uh, whistleblowing was sort of unacceptable, mm-hmm. possibly as a legacy from the Second World War, I'm not sure, possibly to do with deferential society. It was you knew your place and kept mum. In a book entitled Case Histories in Business Ethics, in which you and Sir Gordon Burry contributed a chapter, Whistleblowing the New Perspective, you wrote the following, and I quote Whistleblowing is relevant to all organizations and all people, not just those who are corrupt or criminal. This is because every business and every public body faces the risk of things going wrong or unknowingly harboring a corrupt individual. Where such a risk arises, usually the first people to realize or suspect the wrongdoing will be those who work in or with the organization. Yet these people who are best placed to sound the alarm or blow the whistle often fear they have most to lose if they do, end of quotation. Now, Guy, in a language an ordinary man in the street would understand, please define whistleblowing for us. Well, I mean, I think it's where you see something which uh, looks wrong. You have a concern that something uh, may damage a person or injure a person. And the issue is, is what do you do about it? Do you say nothing? What can you say? And who can you talk to? Is it legitimate? And indeed, should you um, say anything? So the first thing is, is you've got the human moral dilemma as to whether you should do it. But you don't, in my view, you need a sort of template to say what, what, what are acceptable ways in which you can do it. That helps encourage the debate. I think the easiest way for listeners to understand it is, in a way, turning the tables and not thinking of when might they raise a concern, when might they raise a whistle, but when something happens to them or their family and they think, why didn't someone say something? You know, if they have Mm -hmm. a parent in a care home, something bad happens there, almost invariably people will go, but why didn't someone say, why didn't someone say that that person was a drunk? You know, when my dad fell down the stairs or, you know, if, in a hospital, if someone says, you know, that doctor had a reputation, you know, he had a history of why did nobody do anything? You know, my yeah. wife has now, you know, is seriously ill for a long period of time. So I think it's much easier if you turn the tables and you think if you or your family, your loved ones, were likely to suffer as a consequence of that, that particular action, and you would say, would you hope someone would do it? Then I think it's incumbent on you to at least consider raising the concern. Yeah. 
In a five-year report for public concern at work, marking developments of 1993 to 1998, I came across this and I quote, when the idea of an independent resource center on whistleblowing was first discussed in 1990, the issue was seen almost invariably in a hostile light. The term was most frequently used to describe public officials who had paid a heavy penalty for leaking information, usually to the media. Whistleblowers were presented, if not as villains, as loners and losers. But for this reason, there was some initial skepticism about the need for or role of a charity, charitable organization in this area, end of quotation. Please tell us about the motivation, I think you've touched upon it in your beginning, that actually led you to set up public concern at work. Well, yeah, I mean, I've said, you know, um, those sort of three experiences made me aware of uh, the potential importance of uh, empowering or trying to empower or encourage employees to speak up about wrongdoing. Um, I mean, I had, you know, part of what had happened with the case at the, at the bar was I'd ended up leaving the bar. You know, I'd sort of thought I wasn't, you know, it became very difficult for me. Um, and I was very lucky to get this job at the National Consumer Council as their legal officer and then also doing their political parliamentary work. And this was a time when there were very few NGOs. So, you know, we, um, it was a wonderful organisation and, you know, we had a great, you, you know, we had a disproportionate amount of influence at that time so you know i had skills or i developed skills in uh, writing policy work in uh, parliamentary lobbying um you know i was a a lawyer and i'd had some of these experiences but i had a great job and i was thinking i would stick with my job at the national consumer council and then um another very small ngo called social audit uh and i dealt with some of them on uh, freedom of information and uh, the control of the pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. or sort of uh, um, defective drugs. And they had done a piece of research on whistleblowing, a small monograph on whistleblowing, and they'd been given a small grant by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust to see whether something might, you know, there could be a resource centre. And they asked if I would join them. There were already three of them who were doing this work on it. And mm. so, you know, and I said sort of what I thought should happen. And we went through, we spent probably about a year or longer going through what might work, you know, with case studies, if someone approached here, what happened, what would one do, how could you help? Did we want legislation? Did we know what the answers were? Um, and it became pretty clear by the end of the year that it would be a lot better, it would be a lot safer if the resource centre operated under a lawyer-client privilege. So there was no allegation of a breach of confidence for someone talking to them. Yeah. And once that was accepted... Um, I ended up getting the short straw because uh, I was the only lawyer among them. Um, mm. But I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it. It seemed, you know, I wasn't gung-ho. Uh, I spoke, you know, my dad was very implacably opposed to the idea. My... Um, but there were a number of people I'd come across in my parliamentary work, my uh, legal work and my policy work who kindly un understood what I was talking about and were 
said that uh, if I did something, they'd be willing to be involved in some either advisory committee or as a trustee or whatever. And with their, I suppose, encouragement, I then, I mean, they gave me the courage to actually say, okay, I'll give it a go. So I then left my work and we spent probably 18 months then where the charity commission wouldn't accept we could be a charity, which was obviously a problem because the only money we had was charitable. And if we weren't a charity, we had mm. to repay the money. Um, and they were uh, pretty insistent that there could be no public benefit in giving advice to prospective whistleblowers. Anyway, we, we persuaded them to change their mind. Um, but so, yeah, the motivation was it sort of fitted with where I had, um, yeah, with, with what the, the experiences I'd had both as an employee and then as a lawyer and at the National Consumer Council, an opportunity came along and the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust gave what was a very, very large grant at that time. This is 1991 mm -hmm. of, of a quarter of a million pounds spread over five years. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was made, other people made it as easy for me as um, as it could have been. As the whistleblowing charity you founded is about to celebrate its 30th birthday come 2023, what has changed for whistleblowers in the time since you established PCAW? And in particular, has the public perception of whistleblowing changed? And is this matched by employers' responses? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, other people are probably more impartial judges of this than me. But, um, yeah, I would definitely say the perception has changed. I mean, when we started, as I just referenced, you know, the Charity Commission's official line, and they were in touch with the Home Office, was there could be no public benefit in giving confidential advice to employees who had concerns about wrongdoing at work. The culture at that time, um, it seems, a, it's a slightly unfortunate analogy, but I mean, you know, on a scale of, activities that would dislike i mean a whistleblower was pretty close to like being a paedophile it was not something it was not a term it was a term of abuse basically that was one of the first things the second thing with the term um i'm not sure this was a sort of there was a sort of cunning plan in this but most the occasional whistleblowers that came forward um, would do it anonymously initially, would then be exposed, would then be dismissed for their deceit. They would then quite often get in, you know, uh, they would lose their home, lose their, uh, their marriage would break up, whatever. So the story was a terrible story. If you were called a, you know, to say there is someone who was a whistleblower who you could have held up as a role model then was almost non-existent. Um, so I think the changes are the perception has changed a lot. I mean, I, I left uh, public concern at work, what, something like 12 years ago, more. Um, I don't think it's got worse since I left, but certainly by the time I left, it was it was more a, a positive when you gave surveyed people that uh the word whistleblower received a more positive i forgot it was like 60 percent people thought it was a good thing so there was a change there i think probably the more important change is that one of the things i was hoping whistleblowing would do would fashion a move away from anonymity people making passing information anonymously which mm. in my sort of understanding of history is sort of every tyranny has depended on anonymous informants, has promoted mm. anonymous informants. And even though, I mean, I failed 
to a very important extent because I think social media, the way it has developed, is massively hampered by this anonymity. Um, so in the period, you know, social media admittedly started sort of pretty much around the time I was leaving, but that mm. has become an issue. But for, in whistleblowing, I think it's a very marked move away from anonymity. I mean, there is the important case of WikiLeaks and what they were trying to do. But when mm-hmm. you move outside of that, um, I think a lot of journalists recognize that anonymity isn't uh, desirable. I think people realize it's easier to stand up and be counted. You can have a clean back. The Facebook whistleblower, the guy, Edward Snowden, a lot of people who raise concerns. And obviously, one of the important things of the legislation was that you can claim the protect to claim the protection you have to identify yourself and identify the concern you raised and you know how you raised it and identify the the reprisal that you suffered from it so therefore Mm. there's been an important shift away so i'm very i'm pleased about that i wish it could have some effect on uh in social media as well and then you ask about employers. I think it has changed a lot. I think one of the things that, you know, we, when, I mean, the legislation moved incredibly quickly. I mean, the legislation was on the statute book five years after we started the charity. When we started the charity, we didn't have any answers. We said we don't know the answers. When I was first approached by politicians, who wanted to run a bill, I said, I can't, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, we're not ready. And they said, they came back and said, well, look, okay, we understand, Guy, but look, something needs to be done now. And either, if you won't help us, we'll do it ourselves. But if you tell us what to do, we'll take your lead on it. And that was how it um, it moved forward, and I think one of the, in the context of the employers, I didn't want. I wanted uh, the legislation to get people to think about the issue. That was the real thing for me. If you were going to get a cultural change, it was because people were going to think about it, and so there wasn't like. <clears throat> There wasn't attached to it a code, a whistleblowing policy, which you just had to photocopy and stick on a notice board and move on. There wasn't a tick box. So it was structured in a way to get people to uh, think about their workplace whether uh, and think about the issue and discuss it. And I think that was one of the reasons. So there's an enormous number of, you know, which we didn't, uh yeah for something where whistleblown policies were not mandated um they're incredibly widespread in the uk and part of that is to do with the structure of the legislation a legislation which doesn't tell people what to do in a sort of control sense but tries to get people to think about it i think the other thing i would say is you know we were a very small charity and there are obviously lots of other organizations around I think the other reason the legislation sort of was able to influence the cultural change was there weren't, there wasn't just sort of one uh, actor or custodian. So like in a lot of legislation, you know, it says, well, you know, crime is for the police to go and do this or Mm -hmm. it's for the auditor or whatever. And the way we constructed the legislation was that there were many different players. So there were auditors, there were regulators, there were employees, there were unions, um, there was the individual employee, there was the media, there were professional bodies. So, and the legislation applied across all sectors. So I think that was the really important thing. It meant that at any given time, there was a group, uh, either a horizontal group, in other words, professionals, um uh auditors unions or a vertical group um regulators whatever uh, and media so on who had an interest in uh the issue and how it 
might impact on them. And Mr. I suppose, John... sorry, can I just also say is, is the fact that we were able to move the debate, as I said at the beginning, when we started to be a whistleblower, you pretty much had to be a victim. You, the, the term was not uh, the term was not used for someone who wasn't a victim. It was almost like saying everybody who gets married ends up in an incredibly messy divorce and their lives are ruined. Um, but and there's been a shift from that, so I think that's a good thing. Mr. Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian published a piece commenting on the recently concluded British local elections of 2022, brought the following, and I quote, In power for 12 years, almost to the day, with a prime minister who broke a life and death law that he imposed, that he had imposed, and who is thought by 78% of the country to have lied about it. A government whose state of moral decay is embodied by the MP who watched pawn in the House of Commons and expected us to believe he only wanted to look at tractors, end of quotation. Now, Mr. Johnson resigned from his role as the British Prime Minister on the 7th of July, 2022. But in the context of the published Sue Gray report and the new focus of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, including perhaps the most significant resignation in 2022 for the purposes of our podcast, that is, the resignation of Lord Gitt, the Prime Minister's ethics advisor. Guy, how important is it for a leader to set standards and culture in public life? Well, I mean, I, just, I think it's essential. And, and I wouldn't just say in public life. I mean, it's essential in, in a private organisation, you know, in, in a business. Um, you know, the leader is i mean i used to keep bees and you know the queen bee gives out a pheromone so even though she's like the genetic mother of the worker bees if she dies and you put another queen in the hive so there's another like leader in the hive she gives out a pheromone which will alter the characteristics of the hive so you know you can have a a hive of bees which are actually quite aggressive bees or quite docile bees, but say they're aggressive bees, you mm. can remove the queen, put in a more docile, uh, a, 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 a more placid queen, and the character of the hive will change. It will respond to the queen bee. So I think with organisations, people look to the leader and how they treat their staff, how they treat their colleagues, how open they are, um, how accountable they are and how honest they are. And uh, I just think, you know, there isn't a successful organisation that doesn't have a, a successful leader. I'm, I'm pretty clear on that. And I mean, you know, I think one of the shames about what happened, I, I need to sort of give important credit here that, the when I mentioned earlier that the MPs came and said, you know, come on, can you do something? We need to do something now. The background to that was that the first Nolan committee had come out and they had we had written something for them. And they, in a sense, adopted it almost entirely, what we were saying about whistleblowing and the importance mm. of whistleblowing. And... In that report, you know, Nolan, Lord Nolan and the committee came out with the seven principles of public life. And the seventh is leadership. Mm -hmm. And 
the others was being selfless, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty, and leadership. And for leadership, he said, holders of public office should exhibit these principles in their own behavior and treat others with respect. They should actively promote and robustly support the principles and challenge poor behavior wherever it occurs. I mean, that is not what has happened in the UK in the last couple of years. Now, obviously, a fair part of that is laid at the door of um, the prime minister and some of those around him. But also, I think part of the problem is the a lot of the British approach to sort of rules is is very prescriptive, you know. They mm-hmm. like to, in the context of Europe, people always used to say, why did the UK gold plate EU directives? Um, the, the civil service or civil servants or other people are very particular. Legislation is incredibly long, detailed, and they're, they're particular things they're trying to either catch or make an exception for a particular thing because a lobbyist wants it or whatever. And it's pretty impenetrable to the ordinary public. Mm. Now, the Nolan Seven Principles were not impenetrable. They were, they are really simple, they are self-evident. And you know, he came up with those in 1993. So what is that? It's almost 30 years ago. Um, I would far rather we said that leaders in public organisations should be required to pledge themselves to and to be judged by those principles as principles. Surely, yeah, there'll be dispute over bits of them and how well someone's done it or not. But as a principle... I think it's much more effective um, than having very detailed rules where the leaders having to consult lawyers as to whether they can do or not do that. Um, so anyway, leadership is very important, not just in public life, but in in any organisation. Indeed, in, in a family, it's important. In light of the new government bill, the economic crime, open brackets, transparency and enforcement, close brackets, Act 2022, which seeks to expose Russian oligarchs laundering activities in London. And the fact that HMRC has a discretionary program to pay whistleblowers for information. Now, according to a recent Freedom of Information request, it has been revealed that HMRC only pays out around £300,000 sterling annually to whistleblowers. Also, the Competition and Markets Authority has a mandatory programme concerning this issue. However, the whistleblower reward under this programme is capped at around £100,000 sterling a modest sum for throwing away one's career or committing career suicide. Referencing this particular issue of paying whistleblowers, Mr John Bowers QC is on the record in a recently published article for advocating that, and I quote, rewards would signify that it is a public good that responsible whistleblowers contribute to disclosures. So perhaps this is an idea whose time has come. End of quotations. Guy, is now a good time for the British government to seriously consider rewarding whistleblowers as a matter of policy? And if yes, how much would you consider to be a realistic sum well, I think the first thing is historically, I think we need to, we shouldn't overlook the fact that um, 
the reward, the system of rewards, which the Americans are, are, are well noted for, which is called qui tam, is actually a venerable English system. The Americans didn't invent it. They just used an English, a principle of English common law. Um, and indeed, until uh, 1951, there was legislation about rewarding people. And it, it, it built up in the UK, in England, because there wasn't a police, you know, there wasn't a police force until Robert Peel. There yeah. weren't, you know, everyone knew. So, so if you saw something wrong and someone was doing something wrong, someone was um, fixing, you, you know, the, a shopkeeper was fiddling the weights and saying this pound of sugar wasn't a pound of sugar. It was actually... Uh, you know, the weights were wrong. If someone was um, import, you know, a, a smuggling goods in, if someone was doing something wrong, uh, then the way the English law developed was that an individual who challenged that would be entitled to a reward because there wasn't a police force to do it. There weren't regulators. So society has sort of moved on. We have a police force. And since the in my life, there's a huge uh, increase in the number of regulators in different fields. Um, so I think it's if one's going to look at it as a matter of policy, you need to bear in mind the history of it, how it developed, what the checks and balances were. Um, one of the reasons I think I, I'm all in favour of people considering things. Uh, I, I think that the two issues I want to particularly raise in this, one is uh, organisations have become much more complicated, partly to do with uh, new technology. And, you know, if, if you wanted to fleece people using new technology, um, you can do it very effectively. And if you do it effectively you can probably uh, take and hide the money that you get from that very quickly. By the time the, the crime has happened, the money's gone and there's not much mm. you can do about it. And the wrongdoer has gone as well. Um, and so trying to catch it early will almost certainly depend on inside information. Now, the legislation does provide them some protection. But like all legislation, all laws, these things can be contested. Um, I think also there is a problem in, in America. It's claimed, I don't know for sure, I'm not an expert on it, that where you get a percentage of the reward of the money that you save the government. So, you know, if you report a, uh, most of the stuff in the States, I believe, is on um, in the, the healthcare field. But if there is a, someone, uh, a, an organisation that is committing a, a healthcare fraud, um, as a result of which, uh, say, a uh, billion dollars is defrauded, the penalty is triple damages. So it's triple that, it's three billion. And then the whistleblower is entitled to a cut of that. Now, one of the moral dilemmas of that is that some people may delay blowing. The longer they delay blowing the whistle in that situation, the bigger the reward they they would get. I mean, it's an issue one needs to consider. I'm not saying it's a um, it, it's a reason not to uh, consider the issue. Um, and I think, you know, what's a realistic sum? I'm not massively in favour of rewards. I don't really believe the British people are. There's a, in, the, in the crime field, there's an organisation called Crime Stoppers. Admittedly, it's not really giving huge rewards. It does sometimes give significant rewards. Um, in America, it gives these awards. And basically, whenever there's a reward available, or a most of them are claimed in England, the last time I looked, 4% of uh, people who give information to Crime Stoppers claim the reward. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, it's not, there's something in Britain where the British culture sort of views rewards as a bit grubby. Mm -hmm. 
and as to the sum of money i think it's uh as i say you know the legislation will protect people or can protect people um i think it's for the regulator i think there needs to be a public debate about it um yeah um uh, there needs to be a public debate and i'd be interested in what people said and on the basis of what they said i'd then review and think whether what might be a realistic sum the title of our podcast is whistleblower an angel a villain or a bloody fool guy what is the biggest misconception people have about whistleblowing um well i think i mean you know whistleblowing is an activity and people have a choice as to whether to do it or not and i think uh i mean i used to say this when i was at uh, working in the field and i still think there's a lot of truth in it and it it was reported to me that the uh it was a, an australian policeman who was like the head of the australian fraud squad was at his leaving party and observed to his colleagues who were hoping he would leave some sort of pithy comment for them to guide them on the way forward without him and he said apparently um you know 5% of people are fraudsters are wicked are bad 5% of people are angels and really good and 90% of people are opportunists if you want to move the world forward you have to engage with the opportunists now i'm not saying the figures are exactly right but i think as an as a uh a template for thinking about whistleblowing i think that's helpful and we adopted that ourselves i mean we didn't introduce the whistleblowing we didn't promote the whistleblowing legislation so that the 5% of good people who you know very good angelic people who would blow the whistle come what may would raise a concern they didn't need the legislation to do that we the legislation was more geared at the 90% of people who might be aware of something and might wonder what to do about it and that was really what what so our the legislation was aimed at that whether you call them middle england or whatever you know the bulk of people who see something and wonder whether they should do do something or not um so i think i would be very surprised if uh, anyone listening to this could go through could reach my age without coming across a situation where they came across some wrongdoing and wondered what they might do about it and whether they should do something about it and what it was if they decided they wanted to do something they should do so and the legislation was really trying to give a, a steer to those people to change the cultural debate and i think as i said i think we've probably done that i'm not saying this is uh, the other point in terms of a misconception i mean you know we gave advice to I don't know while I was there I mean I think it was probably more than 10,000 people sorry when I say we you know I did some of them my colleagues did a lot um I think my memory is is that when someone would phone up and say I am a whistleblower um you know that they hoisted that flag and marched under that flag as often as not they would be in some sort of mortal conflict at work um and they would have sort of lost sight of where their best interests were and in as insofar as there was a malpractice how that malpractice could get identified uh and addressed i think the the clients who we had which i uh relished with people who would just say oh, I don't know if I should I don't want to bother you but I think this is 
I think this is going on. I really don't know what to do. I mean, it may not be right, but I just think if I am, I just think maybe I ought to do something about it. And they were the, uh, yeah, I was, it was an enormous honor to be able to help people in that uh, situation and with that, that approach. Finally, who is the most influential person in your life, Guy? And how did they impact you personally? Uh, I think it's probably both my mum and my dad. I mean, my parents did divorce when I was about 17. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, they they were they both had a lot of strength they were quite strong-willed they were both pretty smart um i'm a mongrel i'm proud to be a mongrel um yeah they were the most influential people but I, 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 the one thing i'd say about influence is influence doesn't necessarily mean you always follow an influential person you can observe an influential person and decide you'll do things in a slightly different way. But no, my parents are the most uh, influential and then my late wife, Diana. Mr. Guy Den, thank you very much for giving us your time. What a pleasure it is to hear you speak. Thank you. It's a pleasure and thank you for the interview, Stephen, and thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Kamgasa Challenge blog website. A special thanks, thank you, goes to Ms. Elizabeth Gardner, the Chief Executive Officer at Protect Advice, and Ms. Mary Inman, a partner and Head of International Whistleblowing Practice at Constantine, Canon LNP. Their kind contributions made this podcast possible. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow and subscribe to us. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>